Thank you, Scott, and good morning, Calvary. If you have a Bible with you, I want to ask you to grab that right now. We'll be in Daniel chapter 4 this morning, Daniel chapter 4. I want to welcome those of you watching online and invite you to grab a Bible and track along with us this morning as we continue our teaching series in the book of Daniel. You know, before we jump in this morning, I want to take a moment to wish a happy 4th of July to all of you and to your families. Uh, I know today is a day for me where I just have a lot of gratitude uh, for the country I was born in, the country I live in, the country I get to raise my family and love my neighbor and follow my Jesus in. Um, And so, yeah, I'm filled with gratitude this morning. And and yet, if you're anything like me, when 4th of July or moments like this roll around, you, you also start to take stock and assessment of, of kind of where our nation and, and our country and our people are, are at. And it really doesn't matter this morning where you are on the political or ideological spectrum. Well, one of the things that is just stunningly obvious to say right now is that things seem to be changing pretty rapidly around us. And for some of you and for some of those things that are changing, it's good things and encouraging things and positive things that are changing. And maybe some of you look at some of the changes and see really destructive or toxic or unhealthy things that are changing in our nation. The the real truth of the matter is that any thinking person who looks around our world or our nation or even our community right now can see things changing pretty rapidly. And it might not surprise you to learn that the people of God, the faithful men and women who have followed after God throughout all of history, have always lived in times of change and times of upheaval. It's actually not new, though the circumstances are different. It's not new that we would live in a time and a season and a place and in a nation where things are changing rapidly. And the good news for all of us this morning as we think about 4th of July, as we celebrate our nation, but as we think about how things are changing all around us, is that the Bible is a depth of resource for us to turn to when things are changing, when things seem scary, when things seem unsettling, when the ground seems to be moving underneath our feet. You see, this morning as we turn to Daniel chapter 4, I want to ask a question, and I want to try to answer it through this text. Here's the question. What gives us courage in the midst of a changing world? Because again, left, right, center, wherever you are at this morning, you have to confess that the world is changing rapidly around us. And the good news for all of us this morning is that there is something we can cling on to that gives us courage, that gives us faith in the midst of a changing world. And here's what I want you to see this morning. What gives us courage in the midst of a changing world? It is a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. A biblical understanding of the fact that our God rules and reigns and has absolute authority over all things in my life, my family, my church, my city, my state, my country, and this world. My God has absolute authority over all of these things. Now, I chose this word carefully, a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God, because my concern for so many Christians living in the West and in the 21st century is that our understanding of God's sovereignty and his authority and his power is shaped less by the Bible and more by the culture around us. And so I think so many people, even Christians, maybe even some of us here, have kind of bought into a view of God that really sees him as functionally a deist kind of God that created the world and gave us free will and free choice and created natural processes, but then just kind of took his hands off the wheel and stands back, hoping that we'll figure it out. And what I want to proclaim to you this morning is a God who is so much better than that. A God who has not taken his hands off the wheel, even for one moment, in the last year, in the last century, in the last millennia, throughout all of time, the biblical perspective of the sovereignty of God 
It's something that might shock our modern sensibilities. And yet it is good news for the people of God. It is that which gives us courage in the midst of a changing world. I want you to see this in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. Now this is a bit of an interesting part of the book of Daniel where the fourth chapter is actually an epistle. And it is an epistle written not by someone who loves God or walks with God or some of the people who have been in exile. Now this is an epistle written by King Nebuchadnezzar. It's written by the king of Babylon. And now let me situate you here in the book of Daniel because if you're not new to the Bible or you've just never really tracked with how the Bible storyline goes along, it can be confusing who's in charge and where people are and what's happening throughout the Bible. And I've said this before to you and I'll say it again, that if you wanna deeply understand the Bible storyline from Genesis all the way through Revelation, what you need to understand is that the people of God, whether it be Old Testament Israel or the church in the New Testament, has always lived in opposition or with those who oppose them in opposition to powers and empires and kingdoms and armies. But throughout the scripture, with all of the different empires, all of the different armies, all of the different nations the people of God face, there are six of those empires that give a framework for the entire Bible, six and only six. And so I'm gonna present it to you this morning. I want you to know these six. If you're a note taker, this will help you to write down these six empires to understand the biblical storyline. And the way I was taught to remember these six empires was through a phrase given to me by a professor in college. I'm going to say it, it's going to sound strange, but if you'll remember this six word phrase, you might actually remember these six empires in the Bible. Here's the phrase, eat at Bill's, Pittsburgh's great restaurant. Eat at Bill's, Pittsburgh's great restaurant. Now nothing, I don't know that there's a place called Bill's and I've never been to Pittsburgh, but I want you to know that eat at Bill's, Pittsburgh's great restaurant, those six words will help you remember these six empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Eat at Bill's, Pittsburgh's great restaurant. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis with the people of God growing and growing into a family and they go into Egypt and they're opposed by Egypt. God saves them out of Egypt. They go into the promised land and there you'll see their conflict with a bunch of the ites, right? The Jezebites and the Amorites and the ites and the ites and the ites. But ultimately the empire that comes up against them is the empire of Assyria, which will take out the Northern kingdom, destroy the Northern kingdom of Israel. Later on, you'll see the kingdom of Babylon come in and Babylon will destroy the, the kingdom of Judah and destroy Solomon's temple. People will be exported. They will be taken away as exiles into Babylon until Persia takes over. And you'll see that actually in the later chapters of the book of Daniel. After Persia is destroyed, you have the Greek, uh, the Greek empire that will ultimately spread the Greek language and that will be the responsible party for why the New Testament is written in Greek and so many seminarians have suffered over the years because of it. And then finally, in the New Testament, you will see the New Testament disciples in the church living under the empire of Rome. Again, six empires throughout the Bible. And to situate us right now this morning, we are here in the empire of Babylon. We're about to see Persia take over, but Babylon is the empire. Babylon is the superpower. Babylon is the mighty power over all the earth right now. And the king, the ruler, the dictator of Babylon is a man named King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, all throughout the Bible, Babylon is remembered as the most vicious and cruel of all six of these empires. 
In fact, if you know the end of the book of Revelation, John is looking for a word to describe the evil, sinister powers of the world, and he goes, Babylon. Everyone hates Babylon. Babylon was vicious and cruel, and King Nebuchadnezzar was the worst of all of them. This is the military superpower of the world, the economic superpower of the world, and the king of that superpower is a man named King Nebuchadnezzar who writes the chapter that we're reading this morning. So in other words, we get a really fascinating opportunity to look at the answer to a question this morning, and here's the question. What does the most powerful man in the world want us to know about God? This is an interesting thing. The most powerful man in the world at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar, what does he want us to understand about the God of heaven and earth? And we get an opportunity to look at that this morning. Look how it goes on in verse two. It says, it is my pleasure, again, this is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking from Babylon. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So here's what you'll see immediately. King Nebuchadnezzar is writing about our God and he says, great are his signs, mighty are his wonders. He has a kingdom and that kingdom's an eternal kingdom, unlike Babylon that's about to fall. His dominion, meaning his reign, endures from generation to generation, meaning that it is eternal. So in other words, what does the most powerful man in the world want us to know about God? What does the mighty emperor over his empire want us to know about the God of the universe? Here's what I believe it is. Based on what Nebuchadnezzar says, based on what I see throughout all of the scriptures, is that the most high God has absolute authority over everything in all of creation. There is nothing in the created order. There is nothing in the heavens and the earth that God does not have absolute authority over. I want you to see that this could play out a million different ways. We could drill the depths of this until the end of time. But let me just give you a few ways to think about that this morning. That God has absolute authority over the following things. He has absolute authority over the smallest details of nature. Like some of the old theologians would talk about in the morning. You know when you get up in the morning and the sun's shining through your window at this time of the year? And you see the little dust in the particles? It says that God has absolute authority over where each particle is. From the smallest molecular level to the greatest galaxies and the movement of the stars, God has absolute authority. God has absolute authority over the flow and direction of history. That history is not an accident. History is not just generated by the choices of people, but God is moving and guiding through his providence the direction and flow of history. Listen, God has absolute authority over the rise and fall of nations, including our own nation, including every nation that has ever lived. God has absolute authority over the nations. God has absolute authority over the beginning and end of every life. It says he gives and he takes away. That even the life and breath we were singing about earlier is a gift from God Almighty. He has absolute authority over it. Listen, the Bible tells us that God has absolute authority over the hearts and minds of every human being. He has authority over what we think and what we feel. He can harden our hearts. He can open our eyes to the glory of the gospel. And then finally, God has absolute authority over the salvation of sinners. The salvation of sinners. Meaning that the decisive actor in your salvation and in mine is not me. It's not you. God is the decisive actor. God has the authority. It is God who rescues and saves, not you. It is not of you. It is is a gift so that nobody can boast, the scriptures say. Now here's what I understand. The further I go down that list the more troubling this becomes for some of us. 
The further I go down this list, the more questions it creates. See, almost no one here who believes in a God who created the heavens and the earth has a problem with God managing the galaxies or the stars or even the flow of history. But when it starts to get down to my life and my family and my children and our nation and my heart and my salvation, that's when I start to bristle a little and maybe you do as well. Because here's what I like to live under the delusion of. I like to live under the delusion that I'm in charge of my life, that I'm in charge of my destiny, that no one gets to tell me what to do and no one else gets to choose but me. And so we start to ask all kinds of sticky questions and all kinds of complicated, well, if God's in charge, how could this happen? And if God's in charge, then why would that happen? And this morning, I wanna try to answer a few of those questions. I wanna try to guide us toward a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. And yet I wanna do so with the understanding um, that God's sovereignty, as troubling as it might be when you initially start to think about it, is an eternally better alternative than the opposite. Like, let me put it this way. If it bothers you that God has absolute authority over all things, including your heart and your mind and your salvation and your life, it should bother you even more of the alternative. The alternative being that God has no authority, that God has no control, that God has taken his hands off the wheel and he's entrusted the future of humanity to us. That should bother us deeply. But here's what we know in the Bible. He hasn't, he's engaged. He has authority and he exercises that authority over human history and human hearts. And again, I get that that's gonna generate all kinds of questions. I have those questions myself. But there's a principle I wanna lay down this morning as we jump into the text and see God's authority more fully. And here's the principle. The principle I want to teach it to you through a device that some of you are holding in your hand right now, peeking at, using all the time. I do as well. And that's my phone. Now my phone, I've talked about this before. Sunday mornings, it's about to come in in the next hour. My screen report, it's embarrassing. It's terrible. I hate to share it. I use this thing all the time. It is an essential tool in my life, but I must confess something that I think you will confess with me this morning. And that is that I have no idea how this works. Right? And I don't mean like I don't know how to unlock it or send a text. I know how to do that. But I don't know how cell phones work, and neither do you, right? And you go like, oh, it's, uh, oh, my screen report just came in, and you do not need to know. Okay, all right. I, microchips, right? We go, oh, it's microchips. That's how it goes, the processors. And then it's like, say another sentence. And it's like, I don't know. And you're like, how do cell phones connect with people all over the world? I go, oh, it's towers. But then I really don't even know what that means, Right? Like here's this essential device that we use every day for hours sometimes a day. It is a critical device in our world. And yet most of us have no idea how it works. But here's what we know about our phones. We don't actually need to know how it works fully in order to use it and trust it completely. And that's the same principle I wanna lay down when it comes to God's sovereignty. It's this, that we do not have to understand God's sovereignty fully in order to trust it completely. We don't have to. And for so many Christians studying the Bible, there are these questions about God's sovereignty. If God is sovereign, then why this? Or if God is sovereign, then how that? And I get the questions. I just don't think we're ever gonna get to the depth and to the bottom of them. Like I was having this conversation recently with a high school guy and we were talking about the sovereignty of God and it was really bothering him because he was asking the questions 16 year old boys ask about God's sovereignty. And they were good questions and they were sincere questions. And at one point I said, aren't you glad that you don't understand the sovereignty of God? And he didn't like that question. He didn't like that question because he was like, no, I want to understand the sovereignty of God. 
And I said, but here's the thing about God's sovereignty. To say you fully understand how God works, to fully understand the sovereignty of God, is for you to assert that you are just about as smart as God. You can understand his mind. And I asked him, aren't you glad that God is not just about as smart as a 16-year-old boy? And aren't we glad of that? And I'm glad that God's not just about as smart as a 33-year-old man, or any man, or any woman, or any one of us. See, listen, there are going to be questions that are unresolved and unanswered about God's sovereignty. And yet the unrelenting witness of the scripture is that God has absolute authority over all things in my heart, in my salvation, in my family, in my church, in my life, and in this world. He has not taken his hands off the wheel. He is engaged fully with the flow of human history. It goes on this way. We're going to see it displayed throughout the story in verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. And I was lying in bed and I saw images and visions that passed through my mind and it terrified me. So I commanded all of the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. Now he is called Belteshazzar for the name of my God, for the spirits of the holy God is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. And then the rest of the chapter here in Daniel chapter four is Nebuchadnezzar sharing his dream, Daniel interpreting the dream, and then the dream coming to pass. So it's three sections that share almost identical information. And in the interest of our time this morning, I encourage you to go read it on your own, Daniel chapter four. I wanna summarize the dream and give you some images that might help you understand the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world has. Here's the dream he has. The first photo we'll bring up is this one. He says he falls asleep and then he has the dream of a tree. It says the tree was high and everyone from all the nations could see it. It bears fruit and animals live under its shade. It's this massive tree. And here's Daniel's interpretation. Daniel tells the king, my king, that tree is you. You have grown glorious. You have grown strong. You have grown to be the might of all of civilization. And everyone sees you as the most powerful man in the world. But then the dream goes on. We'll show this next image. And the dream goes on and that tree is cut down. And and there's metal that's wrapped around the trunk of the tree so it can never grow again. Nebuchadnezzar says in this dream, he sees a man who is banished from his people to live among the wild animals, to eat grass, and to be completely cut off from his people. And Daniel, in all of his courage, looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, my king, I wish I could tell you this dream was about your enemies, but it's not about your enemies. This dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, is about you. You are the tree that is cut down and bound so that it will never grow again. You will lose your kingdom and your authority and your power and your glory, King Nebuchadnezzar, and you will be put among the wild animals. You will lose your senses and your mind. You will eat the grass of the field until God's time is completed and you acknowledge that he is the king of heaven. This is the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. This is the result of the dream that he has. Daniel interprets it and says, you, almighty king, will be humbled and brought low. And then here's what it says in verse 26 of the chapter. It says, your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my, my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right 
and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be then that your prosperity will continue. So again, the most mighty, powerful man on earth is being told you are going to be brought low. You are going to be humbled. God is going to take everything from you. But then how does Daniel's interpretation ends? It ends not with a threat, but with an invitation. And the invitation is renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And there's something I want us to notice here in a sermon where I am talking about the sovereignty of God, his absolute authority over all things. I want us to notice the invitation that is being given alongside of God's sovereignty. You see, sometimes when I talk about the sovereignty of God, the interpretation for Christians comes down to if God is sovereign, and if God's in control, then it doesn't matter what I do. We expect that if God's in control, then we're basically robots, so my behavior isn't important. But I want you to know that thought doesn't come from the Bible. The thought in the Bible is this, that alongside of God's sovereignty is our responsibility when it comes to our sin. Let me put it this way, that God has absolute authority over our lives, but we still have full responsibility for our sin. We do not get to suggest that because God is sovereign, therefore, it doesn't matter how we live. No, in this passage, King Nebuchadnezzar is told that God is in charge. Heaven rules. Heaven's in charge. And yet, there's an invitation for him. And the invitation is for him to renounce his sin, to turn from his oppression, to be kind to those who he rules. In other words, we could use the biblical word to describe what King Nebuchadnezzar is called to do. The biblical word is that he is called to repent. In the Bible, repentance is this image of you going in one direction, and then you plant your foot in the ground, you turn, and you go the opposite direction. Repentance isn't about remorse or feeling bad. Repentance is an emotion you feel. Repentance is an action you do. In the New Testament, the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. Metanoia means a change of life, a change even of our mind. If I could put it to you this way this morning, there are seven words that describe repentance. And here are the seven words of repentance for all of us to hear. Seven words. God is right and I am wrong. God is right and I am wrong. That's repentance. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar was called to do, to acknowledge that God is mighty and God is just and God is good and God is holy and I am not. And repentance for all of our lives is going to involve us acknowledging that God is correct, that God is righteous, that God is holy, that God is just, that God is sovereign, and I am not. In a message on the sovereignty of God, I would not want you to leave this place thinking that you have no responsibility, no, you do. And that is to acknowledge that God is right and that I am wrong, to repent and to turn from our sins and to trust in the sovereign God of the universe. It goes on this way in verse 28. It says, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Like everything that God promised was going to happen, it happened to him. It said 12 months later, so this is a year later, God gives him a year to turn and repent. It's the patience and the mercy of Christ. As the king was walking on the roof in his royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built at the royal residence for my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew long like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. There's a dream Nebuchadnezzar has. Daniel interprets the dream. And one year later, God makes good on his promise. God says, I am going to humble you, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here's what I understand. I understand that for so many of us, we can hear a story like Daniel chapter four and the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and go, neat story, what does that have to do with me? Neat story, what does that have to do with my life today? Because I'm gonna leave today and go live and what does that mean for me? And that's a good question. In fact, I think it's a healthy question to say, okay, what does the Bible say? And then what does the Bible mean for me? And what I want to suggest and submit to you this morning is that this has a lot to say for your life. Because I think as we talk about God's sovereignty, this passage that we just read answers three significant questions that we need to wrestle with if we're going to believe in the sovereignty and the rule and the reign of our God. Three questions that this text answers. The first is this. The first is the question of God's presence. And here's the question. Is God there? Is he there? And maybe this is even a little bit of a different question than does God exist? Because I think for a lot of people, God exists, but he's not here. He's somewhere out there. And the question we want to ask is actually, is God present in my life? Does he know what's going on? Does he see me? Does he hear me? Does he know what's happening in my family and at my work and in our nation? And I want to suggest to you that verse 31 here is going to answer that question in the context of this story and in our own lives. Let's look at verse 31 here. It says, even as the words were on his, Nebuchadnezzar's lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. It says, even as the words were on his lips, meaning that God wasn't up in heaven hoping that someday he'd come do what he needed to do. Even as he was speaking, God was present there in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And so here's the question, is God present? And according to this story, and the rest of the Bible, the answer is yes. That God is here in this room. God is in your living room. And God is going to be at the barbecue and the pool party you're at later today. God will be at your work tomorrow morning or the next morning. God will be there. God is present. The first question of God's sovereignty, is God there? Is God present? And the answer according to the Bible is absolutely yes. First question, is God present? Is God actually there? Here's the second question. It's the question of God's providence. Does God govern the world? If the first one is about his presence, the second one is about his providence. Does God govern? Like in, order, in other words, does he actually move things and change things in this world? Now, I want you to notice this. I'm not asking the question, can God govern the world? I think for a lot of people who believe in God sort of vaguely, they think God can, but he keeps his hands off. And he leans back and he allows everyone to make their own choices and never interferes in human history. I'm not asking the question, can he? I'm asking the question, does God govern the world? And according to verse 32 of this text, the answer is absolutely. Let's look at that verse one more time. It says, God speaking here, you will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by, which might mean seven days or seven weeks or seven years. It doesn't tell us but it means that God is going to do his fullness and perfection. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The answer to the question, does God govern the world, according to the Bible, is yes. 
God does not keep his hands off and just allow free will and natural processes to go. God governs and moves and has providence and power. He has absolute authority over the world and he exercises that authority. Now here's what I know. When I start to get into the fact that God governs the world, this is where the toughest questions begin to bubble up from the surface for some of us. Like when we think about God's sovereignty, when we think about God's providence, when we think about the fact not just that God can govern the world, but that he does, this is where things can start to get tricky. And I want to acknowledge the two spaces that this can get really tricky, and it is the space of sin and the space of suffering. And here's what I want to acknowledge, that God governs the world, and yet we still stumble in our sin, and we are sinned against. And so there's this really fair question of like, okay, what do we do with the fact if God's in charge of everything, why are people still sinning? Why does sin seem to be just loose in the world, in our culture, in our own hearts and minds and lives? And so that's the first question is the question of sin. But maybe more painfully and more personally for some of you in this room is the question of suffering. So since the beginning of time, theologians and pastors and people of God have been wrestling with, if God is sovereign and if he is good, why is there suffering in the world? And maybe that's not even the right question for you. Maybe the question is, why is there suffering in my life? Why have I gone through pain? Why have I gone through heartache? Why have I gone through things that God could have stopped, but he didn't stop? And there are attempts we can make to sort of excuse God from the suffering and say, well, that's not his fault. But here's what I want to ultimately get down to is that there are things that happen in all of our lives. I'm sure you have stories in your life about something that could have happened that caused great pain and suffering that didn't have to happen. Let's just acknowledge this. Let's acknowledge the fact that we've gone through pain, we've gone through suffering, and God could have stopped it, but he didn't. I think of a couple years ago in my life when I got the phone call that a family member of mine had cancer. And you've gotten that phone call, I imagine, too. And you hear that they have cancer, and here's what you know. God could have stopped those cells from dividing. God could have stopped the cancer before we even knew about it. But he didn't. So what do we do with that kind of suffering? I've shared before here in this room, and you've heard me talk a lot about my kids. I have a three-year-old Grace and a one-year-old Noah, and I love them to death. I love my two kids. And yet, strictly speaking, I always want to acknowledge that I've actually had four children, two that I've gotten to meet and love and raise, and two that my wife and I never got to meet, that we lost in the womb. And here's what I know. God delivered two kids to us. Why not the other ones? Like, I just want to recognize that if God is going to govern the world, and we're going to say he's sovereign and in control in doing this, we have to wrestle with the sin of this world and the suffering with this world. And you've got your own stories as well. And here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to give you some cliche Christian answer with a smile on my face that makes you just not think about those problems. This is the depth of human questioning about the sovereignty of God. And yet what the Bible doesn't do is give us an easy answer. What the Bible does is give us a story. And the story, the story, the central story of the Christian faith is the story of how sin and suffering collide. Because here's what I think all of us can confess. The greatest sin in the history of the world was the execution of the Son of God on the cross. That was the greatest sin. The execution, the murder of Jesus on the cross. And the greatest suffering in the history of the world was Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering for our sins and for our salvation. The wrath of God poured upon him. So the place of greatest sin and greatest suffering was not a random accident outside of the control and governance and sovereignty of God, but rather right at the center of his plan. 
So again, I don't want to offer you some easy answer that dismisses your pain. I just want to draw us back to the foot of the cross and remind us that God is sovereign and he is in charge even when his own son was suffering the sin and suffering the pain of death on the cross. And I want to remind us that sin and suffering, as real and as painful as they are, do not negate God's sovereignty, that God is doing something. And if we look to the cross, we're reminded he is working for his glory and he is working for our good, our forgiveness of our sins, our salvation, our home with him forevermore. See, ultimately what we're gonna wrestle with this morning is three questions. It's the question of God's presence. Is he here? Does he know what we're going through? It's God's providence. Does he actually govern the world? And then here's the third and final question. It's the question of God's promise. Does God actually care about me? Because listen, if God's here and he's governing anything, everything, but he doesn't actually care about you and your family and your life, this is not good news for us. The good news only comes with this third question, does God actually care about me? And you're gonna see this here in the text, how God actually cares about Nebuchadnezzar. It might take a second, but let me show it to you. Verse 29 and 30, it says, the king was walking on his roof in the royal palace of Babylon. And he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? Now, here's what you can see. Even if you're not a Christian, you can just see the dripping pride coming off this individual, right? Look how glorious I am. Look how strong I am. Look how mighty I am. I have built this. It is mine. And here's what we know, that pride always leads to destruction. Pride destroys people. And so what is God going to do here? God is going to humble King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't miss this, though. Not because he hates King Nebuchadnezzar, but because he loves them. Not because he hates King Nebuchadnezzar, but because he cares for King Nebuchadnezzar. Not because he wants the worst for him, but because he wants the best for him. See, this is the great promise of the Bible, that what we go through in this life and in this world is not because God hates us, has forgotten about us, or despises us, or is disgusted with us. We go through what we go through. Nebuchadnezzar went through what he went through, not because God hates him, but because he loves him. And God is ultimately going to work everything in this world for his glory and for our good. And those two things fit perfectly together. See, this morning, as we think about the sovereignty of God, we must just turn back to the great promises of God in the scripture. And is there any better promise than Romans 8, 28? Can I just read this over you? We know that in all things, not just some things, but in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Like the great promise of the Bible is that God is there, he's present, he's governing the world. But most importantly, child of God, he's working for you, not against you. He's working with you for your good and for your flourishing, not against you. Here's how the story ends. The final verses we'll look at this morning, verse 34. It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored and my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out and I was restored to the throne and became even greater than before. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the king of, and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his, all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now I want you to notice that the very end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar understands that everything God does is right. All of his ways are just. And then here at the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just tell us something about God. He is going to tell us how we are to respond to God. And this is what I want for all of us who are in the room this morning, all of us listening online this morning, wherever you're at this morning, I want us to understand that there's a right response to the sovereignty of God. And according to this text and the entirety of the scripture, the right response to the sovereignty of God is to humble yourself, to humble yourself before God to humble yourself before God, to say, you are God and I am not. You are right and I am wrong. You are good and I don't even fully understand that goodness. That is what we are called to do. And when I say the two words, humble yourself, I want you to understand something because this gets misunderstood all the time. Humbling yourself is an action you do, not an emotion you feel. Let me say that again. Humbling yourself is an action you do, not an emotion you feel. When we hear humble ourselves, sometimes we think I'm just supposed to go, I'm no good and I'm the worst and I'm terrible. That's not humbling yourself. That's something else. To humble yourself is to submit yourself to God and to recognize that God is just, God is right, even when I don't understand it. To humble yourself is to trust in the sovereign hand of God, even when you don't understand it. It is to trust that God is at work in our nation that God is at work in your family, that God is at work in our church and in our community, that God is at work everywhere, even when you don't see it in understanding. And believe me, here's what I wanna recognize and understand for every one of us this morning, no matter what your story is or your past is or your pain is, I wanna acknowledge that trusting in God, trusting in the sovereignty of God can be excruciating, excruciating. And I choose that word carefully because excruciating comes to us through the word crucifixion. To have an excruciating amount of pain is to suffer in the same way someone who is dying on the cross is suffering. Which brings me back to the words of our Lord Jesus himself. Can I remind you what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22? Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, Jesus, before he hung and died on the cross, here's what he said in Luke 22. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. You want to know what humbling yourself looks like? It's this. It's, Father, I don't want to suffer in this way. Father, I don't want to go through this. Father, I don't want to deal with this. Father, I don't understand. And yet not my will, but yours be done. And that's our invitation when we don't understand, when we're suffering under the weight of the things of this world. It is to submit ourselves to God in this kind of way, this kind of excruciating way, where we say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You know, one of the ways this plays out for me all the time um, is every time that I think of an individual in my life named Stephen. None of you know Stephen. Uh, Stephen doesn't attend our church. He doesn't live in our area. Stephen is my younger brother. I have three brothers and I have good relationships with two of them. One of them is Stephen, my younger brother, a couple years younger. And, And the pain that I walk through with Stephen is the fact that Stephen and I have not spoken in nearly four years. He's not spoken to anyone in my family. Some of you know the kind of pain I'm talking about with an estranged family member. It's not an acute pain. It is a low-level pain that seems to always be there with you. When you wake up and when you go to bed, you think about it and you feel the weight of that. And I share this story this morning not because there's any kind of resolution. 
This isn't some kind of nice pastor story where I tell you him and I got coffee last week. It's unresolved. It's pain. It's there. It just sits there. And here's my options when I think about Stephen and kind of what he's gone through and and the ways things just have kind of gotten messed up in his life and some of the pain and anger and some of the misunderstanding, all of the things that have happened. It's a long, complicated story. But here's what I can do in response to the fact that I've got a brother who's estranged from me. The first thing I can do is throw up my hands and say, well, it's his free will. God doesn't want to interfere. I'll just let him do what he does. God will just let him do his thing. But that's not a satisfying answer. I don't pray to God and just say, God, well, let him do his free will. No, I pray, God, would you interfere? Open his eyes to the glory of the gospel. Turn his heart, turn our hearts, bring reconciliation. This is what it means to believe in the sovereignty of God. To not just say, well, he can make his own choices, but it is to beg and plead that God would interfere in his life. But then the next choice I can make is the choice that we see often in the book of Psalms. Often in the book of Psalms, you see people suffering under what's going on in this world and they're crying out to God, even shaking their fists at God in anger and rage and bitterness. How could you let this happen? And if you've been there, I understand it. The Bible understands it. And yet ultimately what we wanna go through is a phase where we might just cry out to God in anger. But here's where I wanna be with Stephen and here's where I hope all of you are in whatever suffering or pain is going on in your life. A place where you humble yourself before God I want to be at a place where I go, God, I want my brother to be restored. I want him to be saved. I want this to happen. And God, I trust your sovereign hand over this world and this life. And even if I don't get to see the resolution in the timing or in the way or in the manner I want it, God, I believe that you've not lost control of Stephen's life for even one moment. See, that's the kind of humility. That's what it means for us to pray like Jesus did. If you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your sovereign will be done. Let me um, close by putting it this way for you who are walking through this kind of painful process right now, who have some kind of ache or pain in your life going on. Um, So this past February, um, I had an opportunity with my family um, to go out to Hawaii. Um, And my my in-laws, my wife's parents um, paid for this wonderful trip for us. And we were so grateful to get to do that. Uh, And it was this wonderful vacation. On like the second or third day, one of the days we were there, I snapped this photo of my daughter um, looking out over the ocean. And um, it was this like real sweet moment of like, yeah, this is like family vacation. Like how wonderful, what a gift, what a blessing this is. But here's what I want to recognize. My daughter loved her time in Hawaii. It was the greatest thing for her. She thought it was awesome. But here's what she didn't realize. She didn't realize that this is what it would be like on the morning when we woke her up out of bed. She's three years old and she doesn't fully understand the whole concept of what we're doing here on vacation. We got her up early in the morning and we said, you got to get up now. We didn't do her normal routine. We put some clothes on her and grabbed a bag and threw her in the car. And then we began to drive down to LAX and went through the 101-405 interchange, which is one of the worst places on the planet, right? And we're driving down and we get to LAX. And then as we get to the airport, this is kind of the height of COVID in February. And so we have to put a mask on her face. And then we go through the second worst place on earth and that's airport security. And, and we're rolling through airport security. And then we get her to the place where she has to kind of sit and wait for the plane as a little three-year-old squirming around. Then we put her on the plane and it's uncomfortable and she doesn't have the food she wants and she can't watch Doc McStuffins, which is all she wants to do anyway. And then she's on the plane and her ears are popping and she's in pain because it's hard to fly when you're three years old. And she doesn't really get what we're doing and doesn't really get where we're going. And then we get there late at night and we toss her into like this like taxi cab, the situation where we go off to the hotel and we get there and then she's there and then she has to wait for the room to be ready. See, there's this whole process she's going through. And from the moment we wake her up 
to the moment that she gets to this, there's a process, and an even painful process at times. Now, you may not think flying's painful because you're not three years old. She's three. She doesn't get it. She doesn't know. But here's what happened. Every step of the way on that process of getting there, she could have been upset. She could have been mad. But in that moment, her option was to trust that her mom and dad were doing what was right for her because her mom and dad love her and would never do something to her to harm her just to cause her pain. So here's what my daughter had to realize. My daughter was going through that painful process, and yet there was this beautiful, perfect picture that was going to happen. Even though she didn't understand this is where we were going, there was a process to get there. And let me just speak this over you this morning, that you might be living in the painful process. You might be living in that painful process where you don't get it and you don't understand it and you don't know why. And I've been there and I get it. And in some ways in my life, I am there. But here's what I want to encourage your heart with this morning. Here's what I want to call you toward. I believe that in the painful process, you can trust that God is creating the perfect picture. That God is moving and weaving and changing and governing things in this world and in your life and indeed in our nation to create a perfect picture of God's glory for his glory and for our good. See, in the same way that my daughter on the way to Hawaii, in the midst of all of the things she's going through that are inconvenient and difficult and even painful for her, the ultimate thing I hope that she would have done in that moment is to trust that her daddy loved her, that her father was for her, and that he was leading her towards something that would be wonderful for her. And here's the final thought I would just speak over you this morning, that I would remind you that the great comfort for the people of God is that our loving Father is in complete control. Hear me this morning. No matter what's going on in your life, your family, our nation, or this world, our God has not taken his hands off the wheel even for one moment. And we can trust that our loving Father is for us and with us and in complete control over all things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity um, to look at the book of Daniel once again and see your sovereign authority, your control over all things. And God, I just want to pray for the person this morning who's aching and in pain, trying to wrestle with the things of this world and not understanding. God, I pray that they would trust their heavenly Father who loves them. Help me to trust that you love us. Help me to trust that you're good, that you're with us, that you're here and you're governing all things for our good and your glory. God, I pray that our, we would come to the foot of the cross with our sin and our suffering and trust you in the midst of all this. And God, on this Independence Day, we just trust you once more with our nation, with our world, with our community, with our lives, with our families. We trust you with all things, God, because you are a good father in complete control. We pray it in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.